My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. Tonight in the studio, Scott Neal from Horse Soldier Bourbon. He was a special forces operator and one of the original 12 soldiers on the ground after the attacks of 9-11. He's since retired and now makes some of the greatest bourbon in the world. He's in the studio with us tonight. Scott, how are you? Another happy day in paradise. We're actually in Montana tonight, getting ready to go hunt some elk in the morning. So nice. no better talk about bourbon and war stories before a good hunt. Well, absolutely. Um, I want to start out with something that I read about you, that you actually said that now we have more medals in bourbon than we have in combat. And I thought that was pretty funny when I read that. Well, you know, it's true. And we're very proud of the fact that, you know, we started a new adventure and really knew nothing about this. Um, you know, we spent quite a few years in Scotland and in Ireland and in Kentucky just learning how to make bourbon. And when you enter these contests, they don't know your story. So they're not enthralled, you know, about a backstory. They're not enthralled that you have a beautiful bottle because they're just in samples. But, you know, these judges that come from bartenders to brand owners to uh, venues, you know, they, they, you know, recognize that you've got something there. So we've won, you know, a tremendous amount of national and international awards. And I just giggle every time because, you know, people want to know about the horse soldier soldier part. But really, you know, we've received just as much recognition for the bourbon. Well, and, and I think it's interesting. So I wanted to ask right off the bat, of course, you did your military service and everything. And of course, you were thinking towards retirement. Now, did you have a plan in place before retirement or did you know what you want to do? I know that you came up with this idea while you were taking a vacation and stuff, but yep. did you have plans of doing something when you got out like this? No. So, you know, I get to tell everybody that I did everything I ever wanted to do growing up, and that was to serve our country, right? And that was to be a great soldier. I became a Green Beret after about five years in the Army, and I did every special operations mission there is. And so you never think about the end zone, right? You know, who's going to be John Elway when he retires or who's Tom Brady when he retires? So it comes, it came very fast. And I think right when I retired in 2011, I did what most special operators do. And I went and carried a gun back on the battlefield and I made a lot of money. But, you know, at the same time, I was mentally, emotionally and physically just done. And uh, I committed to my wife. I actually spent about three years uh, working for the Green Beret Foundation. You see a lot of veterans that are still compassionate. They care about those friends that were lost or that they served with that were injured. And at the end of it, I knew if I didn't take a stab at the American dream, right, it, it would just go past. And I would be an old warrior, kind of a Ronin, you know, always living on what I did 20 years ago. So that began, you know, kind of my personal journey and really the journey uh, to, to find what 
you know, would be purpose and passion, all in the same thing. But ultimately, what could I do with my friends? And that, you know, led us to what really became the journey to develop the brand. Well, what's interesting about it to me is that, you know, you say you do it with friends and usually that doesn't work out because the the friendship has spanned over a long amount of time. And usually once you start tying up business and money and all those different things, it's way different than being on the battlefield, being side by side. Uh, the way I feel now I'm speaking from, I was in the military, but I'm speaking from a law enforcement standpoint. You got that guy right next to you. You're willing to give for each other. It changes a little bit when you're on the outside and uh, you know, there's money involved families. This is, this is your career. Like if this crashes, you're crashing with it. So it tends to strain relationships. How have you guys managed to beat that back and, and keep a good relationship and a, a fantastic product? Well, what's unique about Army Green Berets is I was only on two teams of a 12-man A-team for 17 years, right? So you you, you you form this kind of tight brotherhood and partnership. Now, now, when I say I was on a team, so was the wife, so were the kids, right? And they all grew up together as we were deployed. So for us, it makes sense, you know, to invite those you spent so much time because you know each other's strengths and weaknesses. Now, in the business sense, uh, what we had to learn, you know, and it really started with the mentor, John and I and Elizabeth, his wife Elizabeth, really kind of, you know, took time to, to, to kind of quiet our minds. Um, you know, John had already been very, very successful in business. And Elizabeth had a beautiful eye. That's why the brand looks so beautiful. But for myself, I thought I wasn't ready to contribute because I didn't know the language of business, right? What is EBITDA? What is gross margin? What are these terms that makes a business thrive? Where in special forces, you get a bag full of money and two helicopters and, you know, you don't come home until you're successful. You know, so it, it took a little bit of uh, mind drift to find the center and then start a business. And then there's some in our business um, that love being here and there's others that wanted nothing to do with it, right? So you always, you know, even though you want to work with all your friends you ever met, you're right, some aspects, um, it's not for them. Uh, we use a term here called not everybody gets on the helicopter. Now, what, what that means is some people can't transition their mind to a business mindset. Others, you just needed to show a little bit of a little bit of mentoring, and they adapted as quick as you could ever expect. So whenever you, whenever you do this and you step out and, and you're completely out of your element, because for so long you did that other thing and, and you knew where to pivot, where to turn, exactly where you needed to be, it, it's almost a fish out of water um, where you're trying to, uh, like you said, get kind of peace of mind, get centered. So how do you do that? How did you do that yourself? Well, how this began, and once again, you know, you never go through the journey alone. The problem, though, is when you join the Army, you, you, you join with 40 other in basic training at your platoon. You know, you live through the horror the drill sergeant are making you do things you don't know and you don't want to do. And then all of a sudden within eight weeks, you know, or if you're in a kind of the one stop unit training or, you know, you go through maybe four months of training, you come out the other end as a very cohesive, 
you know, kind of patriotic, disciplined, you know, apprentice to the army. So why would you not apply that to the same thing in business? And when I, you know, needed to begin this, it was actually John that took me to Yellowstone. And, you know, it's the first time I was ever just a plain visitor tourist. You know, I've been through the battlefield many, many times. I've been exotic places all over the world, but I was there on a particular mission. I wasn't there just to enjoy the sights and be one with nature, so to speak, right? Uh, And so my first step, number one, is you've got to calm yourself and just enjoy being a citizen and enjoy nature. So we went to Yellowstone. We fly fished the slough. We climbed the Tetons. We did a 10-day horse and mule pack train through the middle of the thoroughfare. So all of that was enough to slow down the pace and really find yourself and and just have simple conversations. Next, you know, is is find what makes your mind curious. And it started by just going to a um, small craft distillery called the Grand Tetons, and they made a vodka, potato vodka, potato flake vodka, rye vodka, weeded vodka. And I didn't know those aspects. I just know that the sign in front said free tours and tastings. I mean, literally, you know, you can't get better than that after a 10-day horse pack to the Yellowstone is to get some free booze, you know. Absolutely. And But as you're listening to the wife describe the bottle and, and what makes a wheat vodka versus a rye vodka, and they begin the process of informing you. So now you were ignorant. Now you're being informed. You're curious. And what became even better is uh, the husband came out and, you know, said, hey, would you like to go, you know, see the stills? Now you're looking at science, right, and process and engineering. And we had such a good time in that small little hour and a half that really that's what we talked the most about. So then we Googled where is the next distillery and the next one and the next one. And I think it took us about three weeks by just visiting distilleries from uh, Idaho on the backside of Yellowstone all the way back to Tampa, Florida, where you know I had retired out of the headquarters of special operations. And you, you learn much more that you have the second question and the third question, and you're spending your time talking in the car. Then it, it kind of turns into, well, let's ask you know, Mark, let's call Bob and see if they want to go over to Scotland and just be tourists. And, you know, when do you go from simple curiosity to, you know, for us, Green Berets, we're also, you know, very kind of structured intelligence as well. So let's share articles. Let's see how this brand got started. Let's read an article about how this brand was acquired. And while you're doing that, you start getting this sense of knowledge dominance, as I like to call it. And we start interviewing, just like you would an asset overseas, you would talk to the owner. How much money did it take you? You know, what is your revenue? What's your gross margins? And they, and you listen to the very next one and you see how their whole idea of their business and their flavor profiles and their mash bills changed. Okay, it's like learning cultures. And so all of that, you add another Green Beret friend and it just starts getting bigger and bigger to the point where you determine that maybe we ought to make a business out of this. And I think it was John's mom that said, you drunks need a hobby. 
right? So the business idea is what we don't drink will sell. So those are the simple truths of our journey because we have a lot of people. They know the history of the horse soldier soldier, but maybe they didn't understand the journey it took us, you know, to learn how to make really good bourbon that won those awards. Now, remember in Afghanistan after 90 or, or, or after we entered Afghanistan in 90 days, 90 Green Berets had overtaken Afghanistan. The same guys in fifth group went into Iraq in 90 days. Remember George uh, Bush landing on the carrier mission complete. Okay. Now you're looking at six months. Well, it took us two years to develop this brand. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? So war was easy. If you think about it, making bourbon and developing this business was just a starting point because you have to wait your, your four or five years until the bourbon's ready to pour. So that's a long time developing a business and brand waiting until you finally launch it. And, and you know, that, that four or five years can't be a non-stressful time. I mean, you've got to be constantly thinking, is this going to be a hit? Are people going to want this? Do we have the right uh, ingredients? Did that stuff ever cross your mind? Because I look at it in in the sense of what I do in my spare time right now with this, and I look at, do people want to hear it? Do people want to listen? Am I doing the right thing? There's that constant where I'm constantly thinking about it. I think we developed from all of these interviews three things we really needed to do that were important in this business. Number one is you had to make grape juice. And if you didn't, people wouldn't buy it again. So as you talk to a lot of bartenders and customers, not, you know, even just as many customers, distributors, um, bartenders, uh, restaurant managers, you know, they all say that they'll buy it once and it could be a gimmick like a celebrity brand, but if it sucks, they won't buy it again. So you have to commit to what are great mash bills and understanding what truly, you know, makes a great bourbon and what are the components of the barrels from the maturation to the yeast, you know, to the grain selections, to the type of grains, you know, and where they, they come from. All of those we developed during the interview process. Next is it has to look good, you know, and that's where Elizabeth came in. She was in the uh, skincare and, you know, beauty industry, and she set a mandate that it had to be like bar jewelry. So we set up out just to learn how bottles were made right? The molds and how they're constructed. Uh, We were the first ones really to use this all metal label. You've always seen these adornments, maybe these kind of little um, inlays or chartreuses or whatever the word is, but never a full front label. So Elizabeth began by making something very beautiful, not only on the back bar that's, you know, this far and you have to look and, and say, ah, there's my brand or um, you know, something that sits on your own personal bar. That's what she said. So she took off on that. And then finally, well, when you talk to distributors, you have to have enough of it. You know, you get into these small niche brands and they only produce so much and a distributor will sell it. Well, guess what? He has to fill the truck and make a profit, right? The, the stores, uh, ABC Liquors or, uh, you know, one of your grocery store chains or Total Wine and Spirits, all of a sudden, they can't leave an empty spot and have your name there. They'll just collapse it and find another brand. So these became the tenants. 
look good, taste good, and have enough of it, right? And be consistent. So that is how we started establishing our business. And, you know, the other one, the number one ingredient in this business is not corn, grains, it's money, right? So to start a business like this, it took every bit of our savings. And luckily we had a small retirement because we didn't pay ourselves much to anything. Well, I think all of that has changed. Now, how did you come uh how did you come across Anchor Glass to start working with them? <laughs> well, the headquarters for Anchor Glass is actually in Tampa, Florida. And I think we met them uh at an event and, you know, uh we just became very good friends with one of their senior sales reps. And we were curious about it. Like we went to uh Barrel 53 in Lebanon um, Missouri and learn how to make barrels. So we were like, Hey, can we learn, go learn how to make glass? Cause we're curious. So they sent us to, uh, Indiana, the old, uh, Seagram's, um, where MGP is right. Well, they also had a major glass manufacturing that anchor bought. So we went in there and we watched all the way from the silica getting loaded into the furnace. They would shoot a hot slug of glass across the top of the factory floor down into a kind of a six bottle machine and this very heavy mold would come together an air nozzle would come in and poof you would have a glass that would open up they pull it out and it's still glowing hot red and it would all happen again and this machine was just smashing back and forth and you know it would literally produce you know a piece of glass every two seconds wow. well after we got done touring the factory we went into the sales office and they said well would you love to have your glass made with anchor glass we're like yes you're a U.S. manufacturer for craft brands. The only option at the time really was going to China or Mexico. Um, and that's why you see a lot of your craft brands use the same kind of round stock-like bottle. So we knew that we wanted to be something that, you know, if, if you look at a Jack Daniels bottle, that's it, right? If you look at a Crown Royal bottle, that's part of their identity. So we wanted to build our identity. Well, what happened was, is we didn't realize that just one mold is about $30,000. And so remember I said, it takes money. Well, we didn't have that kind of money. And we started laughing, like, what is that steel made of kryptonite? You know, is this meteorite steel? Is this thing so expensive? And they, uh, they told us the type of steel and it kind of rang in the back of our minds. And we said, well, hold on a second, you know, that's what the World Trade Center steel was. And that was because we were given pieces of it that we buried on the battlefield when we first went in. So we talked to them and we talked to actually the United Steelworkers Union, which was kind of their union representative at the glass plant. And we said, if we could get you some of the steel, could we get a discount? And it wasn't to be a marketing gimmick. It's literally because we didn't have any money, let alone the money it took to you know, get the molds made. And so we sent them about a ton and they actually sent it to a small foundry in West Virginia that was originally used to craft a lot of the steel structure for the World Trade Center in the 60s. So this beautiful story came about, you know, that our, our bottles is, is not the metal on the front label that's from the World Trade Center. It's the molds that form the entire bottle. That's why every bottle down here says forged in fire. 
And it wasn't some Madison Avenue gimmick. It was because we were just a bunch of broke vets, you know, trying to get a business going and trying to get our own mold so we didn't have to buy it from China and Mexico. Uh, you know, but looking at it, it's more than that. It's grown to more than that. It's almost become you guys' legend. I mean, if you talk to anyone about this bourbon, that's the first thing they talk about is, you know, how the bottles are made and, and things like that. So it has grown bigger than I think you guys ever thought it would. Well, I, you know, you hope that it is. And, you know, our little tagline is legendary men, legendary spirits. And it's not what you think, like spirits is not, you know, actually the spirits in the bottle It's your spirit, right? Your warrior spirit. Legendary means that it's possible anybody can do it. You know, once again, when we went into Afghanistan, um, there's this false perception that we're all six foot two and, you know, Adonises that could run 10,000 miles and all of that. And, uh, you know, we're not, you know, Green Berets tend to be more mountain men than anything else. Uh, we didn't have a lot of resources. We figured it out as we went. Um, we're very creative and entrepreneurial. And we now had applied it in our business. And, you know, I'm glad that, you know, this is this business, you know, has has taken on a reputation, you know, that is good quality. And but I hope most people see just the heart and the passion behind it. Right. We would never put something in the bottle that we wouldn't ever be proud of. And that's the truth. And I've talked to some other celebrities and their celebrity brand. You think the drummer of Metallica, you know, ever, you know, worked the stills? No, they just slap their name on a brand, which is if that's, you know, what somebody wants to buy, they usually buy one bottle and not two. So absolutely, you know, and, and, and their whole thing is, you know, like when you speak about the Metallica one is, they play music whenever they, and it, it vibrates the, I mean, it's, it's, that's a gimmick. That's a straight up gimmick. Yeah. If people it think is. that that stuff is actually going on, you know, that's crazy. Well, there's, there's, you know, I told you there, the main ingredients money, you know, which I jest at, right. But really what's really in this bottle is mother nature and father time, right? Mother nature and what comes from the earth, from the trees, to the grains, right, to, to all the copper that forges, uh, you know, into the stills that then touches and, and kind of uh, lets the heavy oils, you know, fall down until the vapors come up. All of that's Mother Nature. But it wouldn't be brown and delicious unless you had father time. And you can't microwave a good bourbon. It's true. So with us, we didn't want to take any shortcuts or else we weren't going to release it. So that's why a lot of people thought we weren't doing that well when we first started this business is because we weren't going to microwave our bourbon and do some of these things, even though if that's their business, you know, great. You know, I try it. I like it. It's okay. It's not mine. But for us, we wanted to do old world um bourbon right now i wish oh i can't wait till the day when it's you know we can have it release a 10-year product right i'll still have barrels in the warehouse that is aging when i pass and our kids take over the business so that's you know imagine you know it takes 80 years to grow the tree you know what i mean it takes nine months to grow the grains it takes you know a week to harvest it 
Um, it takes uh, three years after you cut a tree down to dry it in a yard, another five days to make the barrel. There's almost a hundred years, if you think about it, in this bottle. So for us, we have the patience, right, to make something that we are very proud of. Well, you you definitely should be. So here's how I want to do this. We're going to yeah. go back and forth between the bourbon, your story, yep. and the making. Why not? We're going to talk about it. we're going to talk about different ones as we go. So the first one I want to talk about um, mm-hmm. that I have out here is the straight bourbon whiskey. This is the bottle. So as I take a sip, cheers. Uh, I want cheers. you to talk about this, and I want you to to you, you speak so passionately about it. But talk about how you came up with this blend, how you came up with this this specific right. recipe for it. So this really came out of a lot of conversations with bar owners and bartenders. And when you talk about straight, straight is a category designated by the TTB, uh, Tax and Trade Bureau, that uh, manages, right, and the colas. You'll hear all of these terms, and it depends how geek people want to get. But for us, certain terms have to be on the bottle, and they can't be misused. So one of the terms is straight. And straight means that it was aged for at least two years, right? So for us, you know, this straight bourbon, when talking to bartenders, and if you look at a majority of your mixed cocktails, your old fashions and your Manhattans and your Boulevardiers, um, that higher rye content comes out in those kind of sweet vermouths and those other mixers in there. Whereas a traditional wheat gets lost inside of there because wheat's a very sweet grain. So bartenders, if you look on all of your drink menus, you'll see that either they're a high rye whiskey or a higher rye bourbon because as you're drinking your drink, they want the consumer to feel that they got a quality pour as well. Now also, as we tasted every bourbon and every whiskey you know that you could get your hands on, you could see the profiles that some of the guys and wives and younger folks liked, you know, and so that began, okay, what's it going to be? Is it going to be a higher rye bourbon or is it going to be a higher weeded bourbon? So our very first one was a three-year-old um, straight higher rye bourbon and the price point made it attractive that bars and restaurants would pick it up and use it as a menu pour because that's where you get a lot of pull and that's where your customer finds you because of the recommendation of the bartender and then goes to your local store and buys it. So that really was the idea. It was business logic. It was taste profile, right? And it was something kind of like charge. Rye is kind of a little bit more hotter and spicier, right? Different notes. And that's how we chose it. It's uh, I, I absolutely love it because I like rye though. Uh, yeah. Some people have that, but I, I like what you say about the, the Manhattans and the old fashions and things like that. That's the drinks that I like. Um, they have just enough sweetness to them, but you know, what I like about drinking bourbon, whiskey, all those is that, you know, you're drinking it. And I know that sounds very basic level, but that's what a lot of guys that I work with say too. They like drinking that because they know that they're having a liquor. 
It's not just going to go down smooth. You're going to get that little kick as it's going down to let you know. Well, you know, it's bold and audacious, just like us and some of our missions. You know, all these things, when you taste it, they become these ideas and profiles in your mind. But I've done a thousand tastings all across the country with this brand. And it doesn't matter if I have a hundred people and I lay out all three of my products, I will have one third, one third, one third that it's like Goldilocks, right? A little too sweet, a little too hot, just right. And so, you know, we wanted to, you know, you know, create a little diversity. Most brands come out with one mash bill. Absolutely. That's, maybe they'll play with the, the um, uh, proof up and down a tad bit, but we came out really with two. So this first one is just a higher rye um, bourbon. Okay. So we talked about that bourbon. Let's get into yep. the mission. I, I really want to talk about this. Um, there's been a lot of stuff said about it, but it was, you know, in in a sense, recently declassified when they made the movie and all those kind of things. But the, a lot of people didn't know about this story in the beginning. But I, I want to check a fact and, and see if this is correct, because this blew my mind. When 9-11 happened, I was in the military, uh, but you were you were already special forces. You had been about 10 years and you were actually on a training mission for a terrorism strike against the United States. Yes. Now, you know, in special forces, you're kind of regionally aligned. You're taught another language. So the fifth special forces group is aligned with the Middle East. The seventh special forces group is South and Central America. Tenth group is is Europe, first group is Asia, third group is Africa. So I had been in and out of the Middle East on, you know, various type of missions. You know, they come down the pipe, you get your packet, you train up for it, and you deploy. So as as 9-11, you know, was coming up that whole weekend prior, we were getting ready on a normal kind of counterterrorism be in the region um, on 1 October was when we were already planning to be there. And so, of course, you're in the United States, and of course, they're putting you through some kind of scenario, right? And that scenario was actually along the Cumberland River. There was some terrorist training camps. You know, the FBI was surveilling. Uh, they wanted to send in some sniper teams to observe. And what was really the meaning behind that is so they could do long-range communications, you know, from hide sites and test their capabilities and their primary and alternate frequencies, all of that stuff. And then the assaulters, you know, would get all this kind of, um, you know, pattern of life activity, and then you would helicopter or you would get off some kind of, you know, insertion and you would conduct this mission. Well, that was the parameter. And on when the morning of Tuesday, um, uh, 595 had inserted some snipers and were coming back in and had to sleep on the side of the banks because it was so foggy that there was barges coming in and they wanted to avoid them and not get run over. And so, you know, 9-11 happens and you're in this training mission and actually thought it was just part of the mission because once you're in isolation, you're in that training, you don't know what's going on on the outside. You're totally isolated. And so that's kind of the truth of, of our story of 9-11. So you have an intelligence sergeant come in 
and yep. and tell you guys uh, World Trade Center was attacked. So you start making all these profiles. Hey, why is the Trade Center important? What could be a bigger meaning? All those kind of things. All those um, things were done just as a mindset of a training exercise, right? Right. You could you could have said that uh, the Statue of Liberty was hit. You could have said that you know. Um, you know, pick anything in your mind. You, you you think that that's a way for the command because they want a curveball, anyways. You know what I mean? They want to. They've always thrown some kind of. You know what I mean? Remember Star Trek and and James Kirk had that impossible mission. You know that who was Kobayashi famous. Kobayashi Maru. There you go. You know, and we expected maybe this is what it was, but it wasn't until a few hours later that uh, Colonel Mulholland came in and said, "Stop what you're doing." This is for real. And if you did see uh, that very Hollywood movie, 12 Strong, you know, everybody went to the mess hall and saw it for themselves. So, I mean, you know, but yet we knew right away who had done it, right? We knew right away who had this kind of desire to, you know, attack America, you know, not strategically and militarily, but he was more proving to the rest of the world how vulnerable America was. And he was attacking us in our financial institutions. And before that you had worked in the region, uh, Uzbekistan, a, a lot over the middle East and, and in different areas. And you say, you know, who was doing it. Uh, were there, were there, were there, was there information coming out before it where, it was going to be imminent, not necessarily when it was going to be, but you definitely knew that an attack was coming. Well, hindsight is, is 2020, right? If I think Ben Laden had been telling everybody he was going to attack America. He had been telling everybody, uh, even though you had the attacks in uh, the coal, right? had the attacks in Kenya, right? You had, uh, people forget that, we had targeted bin Laden back in Sudan with uh, uh, President Clinton. So these things were known, right? But it's just like anything. When you have fractured and lack of unity amongst the national intelligence systems and the military systems, you know, that's where you have these tremendous gaps. And we, you know, just saw it happen. But luckily, you know, you... you you actually had some pre-authorities which allowed America's response to move very quickly. That maybe, you know, it's not explained in the books and movies. So there was some presidential findings early on because of the coal, because of um, what you saw in Kenya that, you know, begin the motions of America's response because originally the first few days after 9-11, you know, what was presented was what the big army, the Navy and the Marine Corps knew what to do. And that's this big, massive invasion. Right. Right. And this big uh, transfer of men and materials into the Middle East. And then, you know, some kind of airborne operation over here, some kind of land operation over here. And in six months, we're ready to go. And so it was too long. And President Bush wanted a faster response. And so a plan was presented, um, you know, mixing CIA and Green Beret teams behind the lines, just like we had worked with the Mujahideen in the 80s. 
So some of my original team members, when I first got to the team, had supplied uh, various you know technologies to the Mujahideen and capability. So it was, you know, let's use that again. So if you think about World War II and the Doolittle Raid, you know, when bombers were placed on a carrier, which at the time was thought to be impossible. And it was a one-way mission. And some said, you know, why do that? You know, it would, it would have no military strategic value. And the president did it because he needed to demonstrate to his own country about America's resolve and the ability to fight back. And so that was how, you know, the, the, the plan to insert small teams of Green Berets behind the lines came out. Well, and, and George Tennant had said that he wanted you guys working with the CIA, rekindling those old flames that you had over there. Yep. How, how soon, you know, I, I know that I, I watched it in an interview. You, you saw it from the whole, the attacks, the passing it, telling you guys you could go over there. You saw the entire transition. How fast, though, and, and once again, I'm thinking from a law enforcement standard, how fast are you on the phone with your contacts or your guys are on the phone with their contacts trying to figure out like, okay, if if we do get over here, this is what we're going to do, or this is who we need to talk to. How fast are you guys responding to that? Well, it, you know, you guys is a big umbrella, right? So right. Some of the, the known and unknown history of all of this is actually General Dostum that reached out to a congressional staffer he had met in Turkey. So imagine all these Mujahideen commanders just won the lottery. <laughs> right. They knew now that America was coming. They were all stalemated for 10 years. The Taliban had all measures of leftover Soviet armor from T-55s to BRDMs to their rocket launchers to their artillery. And they were using that to summarily go from village to village to force these different tribes, especially in the north, to capitulate and follow their strict view of Islam. And uh, they were using that kind of uh, 20th, 21st century armor and mechanized mobility to overwhelm these very simple, you know, AK-47 bolt-action rifle carrying, you know, tribesmen. And so when 9-11 happened, they knew immediately because they had been fighting Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, right? They knew that bin Laden was in the area. And they saw it as their opportunity. So they were actually the first to reach out and passed along that, hey, you know, we can help you and we can help you understand Afghanistan, which America had all but forgotten uh, since the Soviets had left. And, you know, that became the idea. The CIA has the ability to create intelligence networks and take information from various forms and put it into the national machine, right? And Green Berets have the tactical and technical capability to buy with and through a partner and to make them fundamentally better and equip them and be able to, you know, lead some kind of organized resistance and at the time be able to support this large kind of invasion concept that was brewing uh, at the time. I also saw something else that there was so little information on this area that they included National Geographic's in your intel packets. Of course, you know National Geographic is a great magazine. Uh, 
I think we all read it as young kids. It's almost what we call an area study. They cover the population, the cultural, the languages, the vibrancy, the, you know, the, the, you know, crisis, all this stuff. Cause once again, you have to take, you know, if somebody falsely thinks that you're handed this super packet, you know what I mean? With dossiers and critical information, remember GPS had just come online. Um, you know, megapixel cameras, digital cameras just came on. I think the first five predators were delivered um, to the national services. So this was 20 years ago. So there was not a lot to do. There was no Google, right? No Google Afghanistan. You had to go to the library and read uh, and consume a bunch of information because once you're on the ground, you don't have the capability uh, to request that kind of information, you all you have to take action. So the first, you know, you know, two weeks was just consuming everything you could get your hands on, and it went from the public library to you know old uh, Green Berets and CIA that went into the area a long time ago to even businessmen that were bringing tractors into Kandahar to help with some of the field work. So all hands were on deck to understand this terrain, this people, this culture, and this environment. Those Green Berets, those were a couple of medics that had been inserted into the 80s, right? They had inserted into Afghanistan in the 80s. Well, you know, the, you know, you, you kind of went into Pakistan and, and, you know, worked with them in the rear area. I think at the time we were trying to slow down the Soviet's air capability from the helicopters and the high Ds all the way to their jets. And we had, of course, the Stinger missile system, which, you know, isn't that complex, but it takes some kind of training. And once those were inserted in the battlefield, it dramatically changed the way the Soviets had to fight. And it gave the advantage of the train back to the Mujahideen fighters. And it began to break the will, you know, of the Soviet leadership because they just couldn't wholesale you know, precision bomb their way into success. So, so let me play devil's advocate with you for a minute about a question in that we talked about earlier that there was two plans presented. You could do an army Marine airborne operation, huge move, all this equipment over there. takes six months to do it. We had seen when the Russians went into Afghanistan, that it took us bringing, as you just said, our missile systems over in order to give them the ground back. But we saw that they beat back a, world power that had to be at the forefront of people's thinking before we went back in there that we can't just do it like the history books have said we do it or the same thing is going to happen over it seems only logical to take a new approach with special operations with training from the inside and kind of taking it from the inside to the out in that country uh you know maybe you're overthinking it a little bit right okay um, you had this immediate problem of what the current situation was. You had, you know, this inhospitable terrain. You had willing and cooperative resistance. You had kind of America's intelligence system was already prepared for the order of battle of Russian tanks. They knew how far it could shoot and how far it could do. So all of these things were kind of known Um you know, but nobody got too tied up into the graveyard of empire aspects of it, right? It was 
it was too raw of an emotion. It was too, um, too much of a necessity to get eyes on the ground and to get experts on the ground to really start to sort this out. Right. It, it this was kind of like phase zero, this consideration. So there wasn't this big master strategy plan. It really was insert small teams behind the lines, you know, link up with any kind of resistance, help them organize throughout the winter, um, you know, understand how Posthume Wally had affected the Taliban leadership that wouldn't give up bin Laden. Uh, to the world stage because we accused him. For them, they were his guest. Show me the evidence. If you ever have gone back and looked at those first few kind of you know responses from the regime at the time, the Taliban government, they were like, show me. Show me how you say bin Laden did that. And you saw Bush's stance with, you're either with us or against us. So they actually started the aerial campaign, but what's the bomb? Right. The military targeters at the time for the Air Force is looking for big bridges and ammo dumps and all these kind of large strategic targets. And there were none. So we weren't ready for this kind of unconventional fight. Uh, the National Command Authority wasn't. And that's, you know, once again, you know, you, you relied on the simplest equation and that's just small teams, you know, understanding the lay of the land. So they insert you guys, they give you an open-ended mission, establish rapport, assess and evaluate, understand the terrain, gauge the standing of the Taliban, and then gauge the hold of Al-Qaeda. Um, they're telling you all this when you go over there. As you get on the ground, how long does it take you? Because you guys built in 90 days, you went very fast. But to really gain a foothold, how long did it take you to establish rapport? I think there was, you know, a few teams that went in and it literally was within the first couple of days and special forces kind of unconventional warfare. You have seven phases and phase zero is that kind of information preparing. Phase one is insert behind the lines and assess the capabilities. So our first couple of missions were just to see how the resistance was organized and could they attack soft targets. So you do a couple confidence targets, but once you you demonstrate that with close air support and everything, you give them a boost of confidence. And then what you have is more traditional military command and control maneuver where, you know, you start pinning down the Taliban, you know, using close air support or maneuver, you know, all these, these traditional things. And now you're on, and it is the truth of the speed of battle. So, you know, our success, why it was unthought of at the time, nobody knew what to expect. It happened. Um, the Taliban command structure began to fold quickly. Uh, the Not everybody's a Taliban, right? Some are just farmers pressed into service for them. So as you begin to break the hold of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban senior leadership, they began to either go back home or switch sides. Well, and I think Very you quick. talk about that the good Taliban and bad Taliban. Right. So all of that's, you know, once again, Taliban's just a word that we we use more to kind of make everybody bad. But in their own culture, uh, if you ask one aspect, Taliban's a Jedi, right? This knowledgeable, simple person that goes and uh, resolve uh, disputes and 
you know, it's, you have to fight at their level, right? Because ultimately for us, we were by with through them, right? We were there to get, but we're there to use them and their capability and make it just enough better than the Taliban's capability. So how welcomed were you? We talked about rapport, but how welcomed were you? I, I know that they had asked and they wanted you guys yeah. to come over. Like you said, they hit the lottery. But as you actually, because it can be a lot different when you're actually pressing flesh over there, it can be a lot different than, hey, come over here. And then when you're actually there, it might be a different world. Well, you know, as a nature, Afghan people are very hospitable once they invite you into their house, into their tribe, right? You become part of them. That's why you saw a lot of Green Berets wear beards and kind of blend in with what they wore. And you carried very simple guns because you didn't want to overshow technology because you had to encourage them to fight with what they had. Um, some were suspicious. Uh, they also knew that we deserved our revenge. You know, it, the average Afghan has never been more than two to four miles outside of their village in their entire lifetime. So they didn't know what New York City is. They didn't know what um, the attacks on the Pentagon was or any of that. They just know that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And we had come seeking revenge because the friends of the Taliban had came to our country and murdered our citizens just like they did their own tribal members. So it wasn't that complex. It was very simple to just make relationships with them. Well, and that's what I was going to ask you. Is is that a hard story? And, and you just answered the question. Is that a hard story to sell? And it doesn't sound like it was really... I mean, you have to be a good storyteller, but it doesn't seem that hard to sell. No, it, it's not a hard story when you play. I mean, you look through the history of time, right? And what storytelling is, and it's it's an antagonist. It's a hero. It's it's this drama, right? And it's my, I want a better life for my kids and a better future. All those things are simple themes. You don't have to invent them. You just have to articulate them in very simple settings. So it's a lot of drinking tea and storytelling, you know, they don't drink bourbon, which, you know, we're here talking about. Um, they, you know, share, they may not have anything, but they'll share what they do have. And so that's, you know, the difference why you didn't send in a Delta force or SEAL team six, because it wasn't that kind of mission. The mission was very simple tribal people, um, that we needed to understand if they had the resistance capability that could be enhanced with our presence and some equipment, you know, well, uh, the bigger forces of America was being positioned. Can we talk about the gifts that you brought? I thought that was a pretty interesting part of your story too, that, that you guys had to, you know, present more like housewarming gifts to people, uh, welcome gifts. Bring it. Don't you bring it, right? Aren't right. you supposed to bring pie to a new neighbor? It's the same aspect. So there's lots of things from flashlights, right? If somebody, a commander, saw something and and they wanted it, you gave it to them, right? Of course, you didn't give them any of your night vision, some of the other stuff. You let them use it, right? If it made him feel more majestic and more commandable, you know, sometimes you need to prop up leadership. But, you know, that's just, once again, Anything to establish rapport and get insight closer to the fire is what you have to do. 
Did you see that there was a certain a certain gift that 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 was received more? I mean, I know you speak about flashlights that they like flashlights and stuff. Was alcohol, uh, food, uh, gear, anything like that? Was was there something that stood out that you said, "Man, these people no, really like aspect. this." You know, it, it changes from person to person. Right. You know, money to the leadership was, they knew it as way to buy resources and things to enhance their army. It wasn't to enrich themselves. Um, you know, we couldn't carry a tremendous amount. We didn't give a tremendous amount either. So I, I want to talk about the makeup of the teams. Um, and, and I've seen you talk about this before, where you talk about the average age how much experience, the difference in command experience with the senior enlisted experience. Uh, can you break down what an average team? Because I, I don't think that people understand how, when I look back on it now, being 45 years old, how young these people are that are doing this mission. Well, this average mission is 32. And, you know, you know, and in the military, you say you served 20 years. We were already halfway through. And if you have been in the Army you know, you become very senior to people think you're ancient, but really at 32 years old is really where these sergeants and captains are kind of based. So you're, you're a little bit more mature. You're physically fit. You're capable. Uh, a special forces team has 12 soldiers, a commander and a team sergeant and a warrant, two engineers, two commo, two um, medics. And that makes up a team that has this capability to then train and advise, you know, 600 people, they say there's, you know, there's nothing secret about any of this, right? Um, you know, this is, you could find out a lot about special forces and their meta, their makeup, but really what made this unique and makes us different than these other forces is our understanding of guerrilla warfare and how to take very simple people with very basic technologies and weapons and organize them into a fighting force that can then be able to kind of take on this agitator, this, whether it's a nation state or, you know, a warlord or, or some kind of thing uh, and make them better. You know, I, I look back when I was in, I, I only spent about eight and a half years, but I looked and I, I was thinking about it when I saw those numbers and I think to, you know, the command sergeant majors and the lieutenant colonels. And I, I thought when I was there, they were so much older than me. But, th I mean, they really, <laughs> when you look at it, they're really not. And and it's a, a an amazing mission that they're doing over there. And, you know, they've got the world on their shoulders at 32 years old. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. I think people look that haven't been in there, look at these kind of missions and think that these guys have been around forever. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, while you're there, you don't realize it, you know, as you get older, you fondly look back, I go to uh, just had the 60th reunion of Fifth Special Forces Group, and you had a 100 year old General Singlob and a 19 year old private that just got to group, right? Um, so, you know, wars will always go on, and they'll always be young men to fight them, they'll always be older men to lead them and women now. So, you know, it's just a, a reality. So as I get older, I still think that I'm 30 years old, but my body is actually 70 years old now. Right. And my mind is 
some days 90 years old uh, because it does take a toll. You live a lifetime in those very short years that you serve. And so kind of wrapping up your mission over there, the, the big thing that I saw was the purpose was to capture the city of Mazar al-Sharif. Um, and when you, when you do that, is this where you're finding out that you have the, the best hold, the, the most people following you, or do you still have, uh, you know, a, a fight to go to gain a, a real foothold? Well, you know, tactically it was a major city that had a major runway that had, you know, um, a population center that was not favorable to Taliban leadership anyways. So you had all these kind of factors that gave you, you know, this idea to break out. It became the same for um, folks in Kandahar, became same for those in Kabul and in Herat, right? These locations are hard to hold when the population doesn't support you. And when you take out the factor of their advanced mechanized technology, they collapse very quickly. Um, and, you know, at once it was thought that maybe it would take a year. It's because the people imagining what all it would take to do that, you know what I mean, had no criteria to understand. America hasn't broken through the hedges and taken Berlin, you know, for 40 years. So there wasn't any real realistic timeline. It just happened as it happened. So you had to keep going with the momentum because if you stopped, um, it would give them time to reorganize themselves where you just kept pushing and pushing. And luckily, we weren't restricted by, you know, just the movement of our armored. As soon as we found tanks, you take them over. As soon as you found trucks, you jump into trucks. It was Mad Max 101. But what people don't realize is these small teams in all of these locations um, were in the mountains doing the exact same mission in their area. So we actually broke through everywhere all at once, and it just thoroughly overwhelmed the command and control of the Taliban. With the way you came in, you're the first one into the country after 9-11 happens. And everything that you've seen recently uh, with our... Um, extraction of Afghanistan. Do you have thoughts on it? Cause I, I, I like to ask guests that come on that have actually spent time over there. I think you would be one of the best guests to ask because you were one of the first ones on the ground, things that we did good, things that we did bad. Are there things still to do that you can think of? What are your thoughts on everything that's happened recently? Um, you know, there's mixed emotions. Uh, you know, I make bourbon now. I'm not a warrior. I'm not a general making decisions. I'm not somebody uh, that, you know, has, you know, any influence, you know, into what's going on now. I understand the nature of Afghanistan, and it's always a place of turmoil and conflict. It's always a place of rough and rugged terrain. It's always a place um, where sides switch uh, very quickly. So that part I understand and I know. My opinion today, um, you know, I still loved my service. I love my service to the country. I still know Afghanis and, and we're proud of, you know, our time together. And I fear for some of those interpreters and those special interest uh, folks 
you know, that may still be behind the lines, but at some point, you know, I, I can't, you know, I'm already over, you know, my service. You know, I, I have a brand, I'm trying to make a small business. I'm pursuing my American dream with my friends. Right. So I, I don't, um, you know, I wish the best for Afghan that the Afghans want to have. It's- Let's move on to that dream, that American dream. And we're going to bring up the next one now. So we're going to talk about, um, let's talk about the barrel strength. Now, mm-hmm. I want to say I was given this bottle by a friend of mine due to his operational status right now with law enforcement. I can only call him DW, uh, but he got me this bottle especially for this. He's a huge fan of you guys. So let's talk about the barrel strength and try it out. Well, there you go. I call this as my favorite by far. As it says, as it comes out of the barrel, some people say cast strength. I say barrel strength. Cask is in Europe. Barrel is in America. And I think the bottle I have here, I don't know what yours says. This one's 115 proof. So as you know, uh, a bourbon, even though you can distill it up to 165 proof, you have to put it lower uh, than 125. And then water evaporates differently than alcohol. So you never know what mother nature and father time gives you. But you know, these flavors are more complex at a higher proof. It makes you slow down and sip it. I have my neat. There are those that love to put ice cubes. What's very unique about either putting water or ice cubes is you'll see the oils and esters start to mingle with the uh, water and with the ice. So you'll get a different taste from the beginning than what you would get at the end as this thing kind of proofs itself down for me. I love it exactly how it is. Um, you have to sip it. This is definitely not a shooter. Uh, this is, you know, I've seen some people try to make mixers out of it. It'll put you on your heels, you know, two little uh, Kentucky mules with this and you're kicking. So, but for me, this is kind of that after dinner uh, cigar or long conversation with a buddy. And I could sip on this for an hour. And it's, it's uh, by far my personal favorite and by far our most recognized award-winning portion of our bourbons. Since you mentioned cigars, do you have any good combinations that you think would pair well? You know, I, I get this. We're in Tampa, which is home of Ebor City, which is Cigar City USA, right? So we've had some friendships and, you know, it's, I don't have kind of the cigar palette to go between different Connecticut wrappers or, you know, right. Uh, or Guatemala, all these things. Um, I think it distracts myself. I just like to sip it. Um, I, but I have friends that are diehard pairing partners and I love watching them what tire all night long about what is the best cigar for what. And it's just like our straight bourbon conversation versus our barrel strength. You, you'll never get, you know, two different palettes and views to kind of say it. And, you know, I just have fun watching them argue about it. Now you have one other small batch. Can we talk about the small batch? Well, the small batch is kind of our first weeded bourbon, uh, seven or eight barrels. It's a fun picking out. We'll lay out a hundred barrels at a time and we'll start sniffing. First thing you do is smell them, right? Let them open up and then uh, you'll proof them down. 
and you'll see if a barrel is too young, right? Uh, so these small batches, they take a lot of time and care, but it's at 95 proof. And it's for a lot of people that sometimes when you give it to ladies or other folks, they get turned off by the heavy kind of spice, peppery, or feel of a high rye. So when you introduce them to a very soft weeded, like a Maker's Mark is kind of a younger soft wheat, uh, Weller's, right? It changes your mind. It actually um, helps, especially those that love wines and things that are softer. So we introduce a lot of folks to our small batch. They love it. Uh, they put their own ice cube in it. They can sip it neat for the first time. Usually people don't think that whiskeys, you're either doing it in a shot in a cowboy bar, right? Or you're masking it with some kind of mixed drink. But when you introduce them to that small batch, it's just soft and subtle. It's like a good handshake. Then you introduce them to the barrel strength and, and they giggle. You know, right. it's funny that you say that about the barrel strength because when he gave me the bottle, he didn't say anything. He just said that was his favorite. Here's the bottle. And I did, um, I think, drink it a little too fast the first time. It'll sneak up. It's an ambusher, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's the, the barrel strength should last you for a while. Uh, it, it's the high proof, you know, if you think about it, it's almost 40% more than your 80 proof that most people become used to. So you got to be very gentle and respect it. If you want to force it down and, and drink it and gulp it, you know, there's something else that maybe you should consider addressing. Um, but with this, you know, you can have a good long drink. And if you love cigars, it, it should last the exact same amount of time it takes you to smoke that cigar. Yeah, I, I completely believe you, uh, and I believed him after I said that. Being in Tampa, let's talk about your distilleries. You have one in Columbus, Ohio, one in St. Yep. Petersburg, Florida, and Somerset, Kentucky. So let's talk about yeah. Columbus, Ohio first. Columbus, Ohio, we found that through a relationship, another uh, Marine that had a distillery, and he showed us how at the time, you know, we didn't have the money to build our own. Right. We had this uh, location in St. Pete, Florida. We knew the bourbon would be too hot there to be stored. Right. It's just one climate. It's hot and really hot. You know, and we were led on and we met uh, um, the folks there in Columbus and they would let us fly there on a Legionnaire, forty nine dollars each way and stay at an Airbnb. And we would actually produce it ourselves and we would fly home. And if, as you know, you just let it age. So it started with 50 barrels, then 100 barrels, and then 200 barrels. And now we're up to, you know, over 10,000 barrels aging. And, you know, that allowed us, you know, to begin to build out our vision of what St. Petersburg, Florida is, which is in the Tampa Bay area. And we wanted a nice kind of restaurant, a beautiful interior that kind of um, blue jeans meets diamond, very Ralph Lauren meets um, um, restoration hardware. And that was all Elizabeth. She had such a beautiful eye that she wanted that environment. When you walked in there, you were transformed because uh, you think about St. Pete in Florida as kind of a fish house on the water and get yourself a good grouper. And we built such a beautiful restaurant that when we were going to open, COVID hit. Now imagine, you know, putting all your life savings once Absolutely. again and building a venue. And 
it has to shut that week. And it stayed, you know, closed until August. And now it's been a year that we've been open. We've actually had over 79,000 visitors, which is more than Four Roses. Um, there are 14 million visitors to the beaches of St. Pete. There's only 1.4 million visitors to Kentucky Trail. So we knew that we could introduce our brand in our location and tell our story. And also the headquarters of special operations is there. So it kind of fits. Now Somerset. We've just recently announced that we'll be building a, you know, upwards of $200 million facility. We want our own 3 million gallon production. So think a big, beautiful Vendome uh, column. Um, we'll have our Rick houses there. We'll have our bottling line, but we just didn't want horse soldier distillery. We wanted the farm. Now, remember I told you we were on the Cumberland when 9-11 happened. Well, Somerset overlooks Lake Cumberland. So our distillery will overlook Lake Cumberland. There are 4 million visitors there, but we want people to stay and play. So it's Horse Soldier Farms. So we have an 80-room hotel going in, 10 cabins, outdoor concert venue, uh, something that the community can also use. So we listened to all of the folks in Somerset, a very small town, and they were concerned that we would just be a big factory you know, their vision was to be pluming smoke all over the place and moving barrels at all hours of the night. And what we told them we wanted was just like listening to our Mujahideen, right? What made, what, what did they want to see, right? How could we be a good partner? And that's what we're building, right? We're building a, a stay and play destination. You can enjoy the lake. You can enjoy the 3 million acres in Daniel Boone National Forest. You can come you know, get great culinary experience at our, you know, restaurant or ride a horse, right? It's Kentucky and we're the horse soldiers. All of that comes together in a dream and a vision that's a hundred years from now. So this isn't what we're doing today. This is what we're planning to be doing a hundred years from now. And that's why we think, you know, our brand will be successful. We're not here to make a quick buck. We're not here to sell to somebody else. We're here to give our kids a legacy. Well, and that was going to be my next question was, do you ever, did you ever think that you could dream this big? I mean, (laughs) this is, I mean, it's unbelievable. And you know, you, you talk about putting in the hotel and the cabins and all those kind of things. And Brian, who introduced us to each other, did the same thing and, and not only took that brand, but made it made it a staple of the area that he's in. Yeah. You have to think that vision. So back to us going into Afghanistan, you can't tell the initial people you're talking to that you're going to bring in a hundred thousand American soldiers and overtake the country and reestablish the government. You know, it's too big of an idea for some to grasp. When we saw this, you know, we knew what we had in our hearts, right? And this is drive and passion to be, exceptional right to be legendary but you had to start simply it started by making your first barrel it started by finishing our small distillery you know just rum vodka and gin there in in saint pete you know but we always knew where the end zone was and that was a hundred years from now something that would be a legacy brand just as storied just as honored and Um, award-winning as any brand you know today. All of that we knew when we started this. We talked about it. 
right? We didn't know, though, it would be Somerset, Kentucky. You know, it came to us. Imagine it's 20 years on October 19th when we uh, do our groundbreaking is the same day we inserted in 2001. So it really is the circle um, coming home is, is kind of the theme of the groundbreaking, the American journey. You know, once again, to think when I talk to other veterans about this, you know, they all ask how and why, right? And it's because, you know, we, we felt that we wanted to pursue the American dream and take our stab at the journey. So we knew we would work harder than anybody. We knew we wouldn't let each other down. You know, all of these things we knew. So we never doubted ourselves because the second doubt creeps in, you'll slow down and hesitate. And we just kept charging. So there are people that are suddenly shocked that we're doing so well. There are other people that know us that know, of course, you know, this is what you're planning and what you're doing. And so, of course, we're going to do it. I have never doubted uh, ourselves on this journey. You've been tired a few days, right? But then somebody else picks up the slack and you just keep moving. We've left so many people behind us that doubted us. Um, and that's okay. In speaking of that, when you talk about talking to other veterans that say why and how and, and all those things, the question to you would be just like I've asked a lot of people, why is it that when people get out of the military and people give up law enforcement and they retire and stuff, a lot of people just give up. It's done. They've lost purpose. How do we change that thinking? Because I think it is a institutional problem in I'll speak just from a law enforcement, law enforcement standpoint. It's an institutional problem. Because you linger too long in who you were, right? Not in who you are. Uh, a book has many chapters, right? It's, it's not a one chapter and you're done. Right. The problem is you think you're in the middle of your life, in the middle of your career, right? And, and don't realize that it's just 20 years. You know, how many chapters do you have in your book? Do you have four chapters and they go by 25 years? Do you have you know, five chapters do you have, you know, every 10 years. So, you know, if you're going to pursue it, you, you, you know, you, you hear this old thing that, you know, I learn, I earn, and then I give back. Right. So where you want to be, if you linger in the mud, I think that's where you see a lot of dead dinosaurs, right. In the tar pits and they just slowly sink to the bottom and disappear for us. Um, the horse soldier soldier is a great story. And you asked a lot of questions about that, but then there's a lot of books about it and there's a lot of things. That's okay. Um, we're already ahead to the next chapter of our lives, right? We've built a brand. We've, we've survived as a small business past the first five critical years. Survived right? COVID. We, we, yeah. Survived COVID this, this disease. Nothing has slowed down our vision of where we want to be ahead. And, you know, there's a funny story in Kentucky. We met Bill Samuelson, and he used to drive away, uh, drive around Colonel Sanders when he first started producing Kentucky Fried Chicken. And, you know, he didn't start that until he was 70 years old. So, you know, you can uh, have a great second half. You can have a great, you know, last one thirds. So this is not the end of our chapter. 
three years ago, we jumped into Normandy uh, to open up D-Day. This spring, we're actually diving in Saipan to recover World War II crew remains and give them and repatriate them back to the U.S. with the POW MIA agency. That's living legendary, right? It didn't stop because we retired. Now, I love the young soldiers serving today. You know, I love that they look up to us and admire what we did so long ago, but I have to let them be the soldiers of today, you know, but we talk to them about, you know, you will retire one day. You know, what would you like to do and pursue it? The truth is anybody could do this if that's what you want to do. Well, I, I think I don't think everyone I, I agree that everyone can do it, but it takes grit. It takes determination to be as successful. Yes. Uh, you know, success is a measure of, you know, your willingness to pursue. Okay. Right. And be undaunted and to have knowledge dominance. There's nothing given to you. Absolutely. You know, you can be born with natural talent. You're a natural athlete and you touch a ball or you swing a bat or you do something and somebody will give you millions of dollars for that. Well, that wasn't our pursuit. Right. So this business, we could have admired it from afar. or We could have said, well, it was only because of the movie. We started this and nobody really knew anything about horse soldiers. Right. And we just didn't stay uh, with that theme. The movie's done and gone. I, you know, I don't, I care less about any of that aspect. I'm very proud that that image on the bottle is the statue of Ground Zero, but it's not a statue of Green Berets on a horse. It's America's response. You know, it also represents the air crews and the men and women uh, that, you know, dropped in tons of supplies. Um, I am very proud that today is I have some old friends that I serve with and their kids, our kids are here too. You know, that when you talk about what you did in the past versus what you're doing today, I'm just as proud either or. Can we talk about your other uh, spirits for a minute? Uh, the vodka, gin, rum. Eh, not yet. Still in a development. Okay. You know what I mean? Okay. We did. We just put in a 750 Vendome. And it's just a way to keep ourselves lighthearted and try things for the bar. Um, I think, you know, guys become curious. We actually learned how to sail and we sailed to Cuba and we took some time to learn how to make rum. So we played in rum. We actually got some barrels aging now. So, you know, how do you innovate? So one of these things that we've learned, you know, from these large, you know, brands is, you know, how do you, how do you, remain constant for your fan base, but have some fun and innovate and do some creative things. And that's the aspect that we like as well. So you'll learn about gins, about the different botanicals. You know, do you use things that are native to Florida? Do you make an old uh, traditional London dry? We get to do all that, but we get to keep what really brought us to the dance, horse soldier bourbon going. So we're very fortunate to, to kind of we have in AP it allows us to build a customer base to try some rums and some gins, you know, vodka is easy and fun to make. You know, I'm curious about, you know, a rye vodka versus a weeded or a blend, you know, that allows us to have fun. Um, 
But horse soldier bourbon, you know, we've got it down. It's the same thing. We're very meticulous about our process and distillation of the bourbon. So let's talk about where people can find you. What's next? Yep. And then uh, we'll kind of wrap this whole thing up. Well, number one, thank you very much for having me on today. Absolutely. Um, how you can find this is just, you see the link right there, horsesoldierbourbon.com, direct to consumer. Uh, we're like anybody else now. We had to adapt. Um, but also, uh, we're in 14 states now. And if you are in California and Montana and Nevada and Arizona and Texas and Indiana and Illinois and Kentucky and Florida and now Michigan and now Ohio and now New York and now Virginia, you know what I mean? It, you ever play that old game of risk where you had the whole world Absolutely. on there? Well, we didn't want to spread ourselves too thin. So we actually have a plan on which states we open up. Is because it takes a lot of energy and our time uh, to go open those states up because people want to come see the horse soldiers, right? You can call Jack Daniels, you can call Jim Beam, or you can call Johnny Coco or Scotty Neal, and guess who's going to show up, right? The actual folks who did it. So we're very proud of the fact that you can't outwork us um, with this brand. And so when we open up, we really flood the state. We do bottle signings. So if you watch our social media, you know, it's Horse Soldier Bourbon. You know, it's you can Google it right now. Uh, follow us on Instagram. If you want to watch our adventures as we learn how to scuba dive again as a bunch of old guys, we went to the Key West Special Forces Underwater Scuba Course again, right? And we just dived in Biscayne Bay on some old wrecks, and then we'll go off to Florida. So there's lots of fun things about our brand. Uh, but then again, see where we're at and come out and visit us and say hello. Well, I want to thank you for coming on here, taking time out of your vacation that you are on right now to, to talk to us. Uh, well, I hope that you, uh, get what you were looking for while you're there guys. That's oh yeah. going to be, that's going to be it for the show. Check these guys out. Horsesoldierbourbon.com. Check these guys out. They're fantastic spirits. They have a fantastic story behind them. As you see, world domination will happen within the next 100 years, and we are looking forward to it, especially to the hotel, the cabins, all the things that they have planned. Uh, go check these guys out. If you want more of me, you can check me out on Instagram at DTD underscore podcast on Facebook at the DTD podcast and on YouTube at the DTD podcast, where all of these conversations are in video form there. Of course, you can check me out on all the podcast sites for the audio version. And remember guys, the best stories are true. That's why you come here every week to hear them. That's Scotty. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you on the next one. See you guys.